You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hi, I'm Wade Zaglis, Education Editor at Campus Review. This year's federal election was overshadowed by an event many thought could push the opposition over the line, the passing of Labor Party's son and charismatic reformer, the late Bob Hawke. To discuss Hawke's legacy and his contribution to the modern education system, today we are joined by Dr John Tate from the University of Newcastle. He is an expert in Australian politics and the late Bob Hawke. Hawke inherited an economy in freefall in 1983, yet through major economic and social reforms, he is said to have laid the foundation of 16 years of prosperity and economic growth. Do you think today's leaders could achieve this? Uh, well, I think uh, politics is very different today than it was in Hawke's time. Uh, remember, we have uh, the enormous influence of polling today, which was nowhere near as pervasive uh, in Hawke's period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have political leaders who pay a lot of attention to polls. Any major reforms uh, are going to often have negative uh, impact on the polls. Mm-hmm. Uh, people often, you know, are, are concerned about change, frightened about change, and sometimes change has uh, negative consequences for some people, uh, at least in the short term. In this respect, uh, I think, given that today's leaders at least have the reputation of being very poll-directed, this makes uh, radical and long-term policy change less likely in our period than it was in the period of Hawke. Having said that, you have to understand that Hawke engaged in reform in a very different way to, say, Paul Keating. Uh, Paul Keating was his treasurer when uh, the Hawke government comes to power in 1983. And uh, Keating's idea of reform is to really, you know, like Gough Whitlam, crush through or crash. That was Whitlam's phrase, but that was also a, a, a philosophy of Keating. He argued that leadership was about Governments pushing forward, often ahead of the public, and pulling the public along behind them. Okay. Now, Hawke, on the other hand, had a very different model. He governed by what he called consensus. This was in many ways a reflection of his years as an ACTU leader, and the years in which uh, he, he became Prime Minister, he was very explicit about this consensus model. For instance, in uh, 1983, we had the National Economic Summit, where Hawke brought together uh, business leaders, union leaders, community leaders, uh, in a attempt to redirect Australia's economic policy uh, or policies. Uh, in '85, we had the tax summit, uh, where Treasurer Keating sought to introduce a consumption tax. Each of those were exercises in consensus from Hawke's perspective. We can see the difference between Hawke and Keating in the fact that in 1985, at the tax summit, Keating was very much in favour of what he called his option C, and option C was a consumption tax. Halfway through the tax summit, it was clear to Hawke that there was not going to be broad-based support at the summit for option C. He therefore abandoned option C. Now, Keating saw that as a betrayal of leadership and a betrayal of support by Hawke. Uh, Hawke, on the other hand, saw that as an exercise in consensus, that you can't push radical reform through unless you have all of the major parties on board. So there's a very different approach to leadership on the part of both of them and a very different approach to to policy implementation. And... uh, as I say, uh, today, uh, if there was going to be major uh, policy reform, uh, it would more likely have to be on the consensus model of Hawke rather than the crash or crash model of Keating if politicians, as they seem to be today, uh, are so very focused on polls. Okay. Uh, Tony Abbott's statement that, that Hawke had a Labor heart but a Liberal head earned a lot of scorn from the public. 
Was this a fair comment, or do you think it ignored some facts about earlier Labor governments? Well, there was a very, very different... Uh, there's, there's what's known amongst Labor Party uh, adherents as the Labor tradition, and they like to argue that, you know, between successive Labor governments going back as early as Chifley and Curtin, through the Whitlam, through to Hawke and Keating, there is a continuity of Labor tradition. Now, at the time of the Hawke government, many uh, Labor adherents were questioning that because what Hawke and Keating did is that they shifted economic policy very much in a pro-market direction. Mm -hmm. Now, they did that for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was that Australia by the early 1980s, by the time that Hawke comes to power in 1983, is not doing as well economically as it was doing uh, prior to the mid-70s. In the mid-70s, we have the end of the long economic boom. Uh, we have the rise of stagflation, simultaneous uh, rise of unemployment and inflation. This is in many ways a product of the OPEC oil rises, which occur earlier in that decade, and governments all around the world are in trouble. The Hawke government, or the Keating, sorry, the Whitlam government at that time flounders uh, very much in terms of its economic performance. Now, what occurs in the Hawke government is a conscious change of direction from the Whitlam government and that floundering. And uh, they start to develop policy that uh, moves very much in a pro-market direction. An example would be uh, the floating of the dollar in December 1983. Mm -hmm. uh, other examples would be the year after that, where Keating introduces uh, financial reforms, which uh, include uh, allowing foreign banks to uh, compete with domestic banks in Australia. It would also include the uh, reduction of tariff levels over time, which are the uh, tax that uh, are imposed on imports to make them more expensive in Australia. Uh, they remove those or lower those tariff levels so that uh, domestic Australian industries have to compete on a more even playing field within the domestic Australian market with overseas products. Uh, there's privatisation. Uh, for instance, uh, the Hawke government privatises... Uh, oh, Qantas, uh, I think, the Commonwealth Bank. Commonwealth Bank, yep. that's right, yep. and uh, uh, various other, various other um, government organisations. And... Uh, there's also, for instance, late in the, the Hawke government, the uh, introduction of competition within the telecommunications industry, though it's left to the power government to actually privatise Telstra. So all of these are, are significant reforms. Now, Hawke takes credit for the dollar float. Uh, Keating disputes that. Uh, Keating says that, you know, this was also very much his idea from the start. Mm -hmm. uh, Hawke, on the other hand, says that Keating, who at that time, as I say, was treasurer, uh, was more of the view of John Stone, uh, who was the Treasury Secretary, who was uh, sceptical of the dollar float. So there's a dispute between them about who is responsible for the dollar float, which is very much the key reform from which all else follows. Uh, these reforms are really opening up the Australian economy to overseas competition without the protections that had previously existed. Now, Abbott's comment about Hawke having a Labor heart and a Liberal head, there is some truth in that because Hawke is pushing these pro-market reforms. So that's the Liberal head. I'll talk about the Labor heart in a moment. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's also Keating who is very much important in these same reforms and, and certainly the subsequent reforms after the telephone. Uh, Keating very much takes a, a, a significant role in that. So it was also Keating with the, with the Liberal head. If by Liberal head we mean uh, a set of policy frameworks that are about opening up Australia to overseas competition, allowing the economic market to determine social and economic outcomes more than the government or the state. Now, in terms of the Labor heart, uh, Hawke did this within a wider framework that was more in accord with Labor tradition. And that was the deal that the Labor government had with the 
ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, and that was known as the Prices and Incomes Accord. And the Prices and Incomes Accord was basically a deal between the government and the unions whereby the government said, if we keep inflation low and if we introduce significant social, social reforms, such as uh, Medicare, which came into effect in 1984, uh, in return... Uh, unions will engage in wage restraint. They will not engage in strike activity, which had plagued the 1970s when Hawke was leader of the ACTU. Uh, they will uh, abide by centralised wage decisions. Uh, they will also accept award restructuring and uh, eventually also enterprise bargaining was included within that process, all to, to some extent, make the labour, labour market more flexible. Now, that accord uh, remained in place uh, through the Hawke and Keating years. During that time, there was a decline in real wages for workers and the compensation was supposed to be in terms of social services. Mm -hmm. That decline in real wages was also uh, made up by, had the effect of increasing the profit share of corporations. So again, that was moving in a, in a non-labour direction. If you look at the most recent, uh, if you look at the most recent uh, electoral campaign of the Labour Party under Bill Shorten, they kept talking about the big end of and how the Liberals are concerned with the big end of town. Well, to reduce real wages and to expand uh, profit share is, in fact, to benefit the big end of town, and that's what occurred under the Accord. But at the same time, the fact that the Accord reduced industrial activity, strike activity in Australia, and allowed corporations the sort of uh, industrial relations certainty that they didn't have in the 1970s, that also aided uh, capitalist development and economic growth in Australia. So Hawke and Keating were concerned that the Australian economy was non-competitive, their response to that was to open it to international competition through the various reforms that I mentioned and to allow the market to determine more social outcomes and economic outcomes. They did it within the framework of the accord, which did lead to a decline in real wages. But overall, it allowed Australia to make that U-turn from what had increasingly become an uncompetitive economy in the 70s to a much more competitive economy, which had greater capacity for growth. Uh, it... it to some extent, though, you know, there were there were losses. Manufacturing industry uh, struggled under the reduction of the tariff rates, etc. But overall, the economy did become more flexible and more globally competitive. Now, Keating's argument for this, and I'm sure Hawke would have argued the same, was that although these looked like they were anti-Labor policies in the traditional sense of the word, the only way that the Labor government could engage in generous redistribution of wealth, which is a traditional Labor Party mm -hmm. uh, principle, was if there was a growing economy that it's only if the economy was growing could the Labor Party engage in its traditional redistributive policies, uh, which you, you see the current uh, Labor Party also talking about, you know, in the current election with the, the, the reforms to negative gearing and, yeah. uh, and capital gains tax concessions, all of those. Those are really traditional Labor Party policies where, where you know, you... And by traditional, I mean Labor tradition going back, you know, decades, where whereby the idea is to... Uh, redistribute wealth to the less well-off. Well, Hawke and Keating were in favour of that, but not by the sort of uh, shortened policies of negative gearing and, and tax concession changes, but rather by growing the economy as a whole, and on that basis, through higher employment, more wealth, then engaging in the sort of redistributive policies that they were engaging in, in through, through, through means such as Medicare, uh, the pension plans, etc. Okay. Uh, Hawke has been described as, uh, I guess, a great democratiser of the university system and more broadly education in Australia. Um, how would you describe the university system in Australia prior to the Hawke government? Well, it was quite different. Uh, Keating, uh, sorry, Gough Whitlam introduced uh, 
free university education. He abolished fees in 1974. Mm -hmm. uh, the Hawke government uh, changed that in 1989 by introducing the HECS uh, system that we that uh, within since which we've we, we've been working with him within universities in terms of fees. So. You know, I was at university from 1985 uh, onwards, mm -hmm. and uh, so I was the beneficiary, at least in the first part of my university education, uh, of the no-fee system. And I can remember turning up, you know, to Sydney Uni, it'd be, you know, the day that you would enrol, and you would, you would, uh, you know, sign up for your courses. All you had to pay was uh, $250, which was your union fees, because union, student unionism was being compulsory. Howard government altered that. But... Uh, you would, you would pay your 250 union dollars in union fees, you would pay whatever library fines you had, and then you could enrol. And that was all you had to pay. Uh, that, that was a, a really positive system for, for, for people who otherwise may not have been able to uh, afford to go to university. Uh, on the downside, uh, it meant, you know, and, and this was a very, 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 very small minority, but, you know, you, there were people that, who I knew at uni who, who you know, had been there for some time because, you know, Financially, it was you were able to do so. But that was a very small minority. Most people, I'm sure, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just took full advantage of the fact that they had free education, which was, in, in social democratic terms, a very, very positive thing. But the Hawke government introduced HECS in 89. The participation rate in universities was increasing, and it was believed that free education was uh, not financially sustainable over time. Now, the HECS system that was introduced, which was... Uh, I believe the idea of Professor Murray Walsh and uh, developed by Professor Bruce Chapman uh, was, I think, one of the fairest systems that they could have come up with uh, if they were asking students to make a contribution to the uh, to the cost of their education. Because it wasn't, of course, uh, full fees or anything. It was student contribution uh, to the overall cost of a, of a student's education. And that student component uh, could be taken out uh, through a HEX loan or paid up front. And it, and in that context, I think the fact that you could defer payment through a loan uh, rather than uh, the government and the universities demanding that students pay up front, that was a compromise, I think, between the Whitlam ideal of free education and the, the more, you know, uh, uh, free market ideal of full upfront fees. Hex was really a position in the middle. And I think, you know, the, the, to its credit, the Labor government introduced that uh, under financial necessity, but it introduced a system which at least allowed students to defer payment of fees until they started earning money and, and or at least, you know, started paying tax uh, through the earning of money. And, and so in that context, I think it was a relatively fair system, given that the argument was uh, the continuation of uh, free education was financially unsustainable. Now, that argument that it was financially unsustainable, I mean, that's a relative argument. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the government could have engaged in, in uh, reorganisation of its finances to make it financially sustainable, but, you know, governments always have to make choices. They have a lot of demands on their, on their uh, public purse, and so they make choices, and they decided that this is what had to occur. So I think it was a relatively fair reform for its time, uh, and it was... You know, it was delivered by the Labor government in terms of its commitment still to ensuring uh, wide public access to education. Okay. Why do you think the Labor Party couldn't clinch power on the weekend? Was it Shorten's popularity the major problem or were their policies too bold? Well, you know, I, there, I'm sure there's uh, many, many reasons that... that uh, many people may want to point to and of course you know in hindsight everybody's uh you can always trace uh some sort of cause and effect which which might have produced the outcome i think uh if we were to look at at 
at one area. Paul Keating uh, would often criticise the Labor Party once he retired uh, for what he called their hammering on the old anvil. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant the classic social democratic laborist uh, policy framework, which was primarily about not growing the capitalist system, but redistributing within the capitalist system. Okay. So policies directed not so much towards economic growth and the creation of wealth, but the redistribution of wealth. Now, for someone like Paul Keating, uh, you know, uh, the sort of policies that the shortened government had about negative gearing or, or the capital gains tax concessions or the, the franking of the, of the dividend imputation credits, uh, whereby, you know, people were receiving a cash refund on their franking credits if they didn't have to pay any tax. And shortened government said, well, we'll abolish that, although it only affects uh, a few people or not a lot of people, only those who don't have tax liabilities and, you know, pensions will be exempt, that sort of thing. Now, I, I, I don't know, maybe Paul Keating has come out and made comments about those policies, but in terms of his, uh, maybe he supported them, I don't know, <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. yeah, at the most recent election, I don't know, but in terms of his older argument, about the old anvil, those sort of policies are, Labor, are, Labor, are the Labor Party's old anvil in Paul Keating's sense of the term. They're about redistributing wealth within the system rather than creating wealth. Now, the creation of wealth, any any capitalist policies that create wealth, uh, you know, the, the classic neoliberal uh, policies, will also increase inequality, uh, you know, if they, if they are not in some way qualified by other policies that redistribute wealth. So, you know, your classic free market neoliberal policies may, may in some circumstances, grow the national cake, but it also may or create greater inequality within it. Now, Keating was prepared to wear that inequality so long as, ultimately, uh, there was more wealth in the system and everybody was ultimately better off. Mm -hmm. his, his old anvil criticism is a focus of the ALP on the inequality rather than on the economic growth, the need to, to address the inequality rather than address the issue of economic growth. So in that sense, there were there were obviously, I think, a lot of people, uh, voters, who you know might have been con concerned about climate change, which is what the ALP was, was mm. uh, certainly affirming uh, in terms of its policy agenda, and pointing to the Liberals who uh, were nowhere near as progressive as the ALP on that issue. But those same voters who were concerned with issues of climate change uh, may have been also concerned about these other issues. You know, they might have been people who, uh, you know, uh, were thinking about buying, uh, you know, new properties after January 1st, 2020. Uh, and uh, they might, they, you know, um, they, might have been, they might have been thinking about this issue of negative gearing. You know. So there, the thing is, is that as Paul Keating would argue, the Australian uh, public has become more and more aspirational mm -hmm. uh, since the late 1980s on the whole. Uh, you know, there are many more people uh, in 2019 who uh, are self-funded retirees than there were in the 1980s. You know, there are many more people who are concerned about growing their wealth through property investment than there might have been, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Now, that's not that may not be an absolute majority, but it's clear that insofar as the polls were indicating that there was going to be a shortened win, uh, I think those sort of policies that really uh, impacted on uh, the more aspirational voter who's concerned about cr creating their own wealth, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, that may have led to some negative uh, electoral outcomes for the shortened government. Uh, I'm, I'm not an electoral expert, uh, so this is just my, my yeah. own uh, my own estimation of 
you know, what I was reading, what I was seeing. But certainly, you know, there were there were self-funded retirees who were concerned, you know, and, and we, ha we have an ageing population. If they are in marginal seats, that can affect an outcome of an election. In relation to what you said uh, before about Paul Keating and, um, you know, his criticisms of, I think it was uh, beating the anvil or hammering uh, the anvil? The old anvil. The anvil. Yeah. So do you think, so do you think Paul Keating was conscious of the dangers of creating or was, uh, creating a kind of class warfare or, you know, the, the politics of envy that the Liberal Party always seemed to uh, throw back into into the Labor's face? Well, Paul Keating himself, he, he was concerned, as I say, he was concerned to, uh, I think, move beyond that sort of classic politics of envy insofar as he was concerned more to grow the economy in terms of the policies he pursued rather than to engage in the in the radical redistribution. His mm -hmm. his argument was we can only engage in the in the in the redistribution if we have a growing economy. Now so so that's in very in many ways the opposite of a politics of envy. Paul Keating on the other hand did create other divisions, you know, uh, John Howard uh, publicly declared uh, when he was opposition leader in 1995 that Keating would go down as one of the most divisive Australian prime ministers in Australian history. And the reason why John Howard was making that claim was that uh, Keating, uh, once he became prime minister uh, in after the, I mean, he challenges Hawke uh, and then uh, takes over the, the prime ministership by challenging Hawke. Uh, in 1991 and then in 1993 he wins the election against Bob uh, John Hewson and so in that context uh, he then goes on to pursue what he called his uh, big picture policy which was uh, greater engagement with Asia, the Republic uh, and uh, Indigenous Affairs mm -hmm. and uh, these sort of policies uh, oh, these sort of policies according to Howard particularly the Republic, were ones which were, in Howard's view, divisive. He argued that Keating uh, was seeking to make Australians uh, uh, make a choice between what uh, Howard called their geography and their history. He said that Keating was uh, suggesting that Australians were somehow less Australian if they were committed to Australia's British antecedents rather than committed to Australia's greater integration in Asia. Uh, you know, so that was Howard's rhetoric in relation to Keating, whether it was true or not. Uh, certainly that was a widespread view of some, that, that Keating was divisive, just not on the economic agenda, more on these other agendas. Okay. Dr John Tate, it's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you for speaking with Campus Review. Thank you.